Ladies and germs, welcome to The Alchemix Show. My name is Tommy Alchemy, and this is the show where we believe that the modern alchemist is the chef, the distiller, the bartender, and really the people that believe in creating something out of nothing. We're doing the show because we have a lot of short films that we're preloading for the YouTubes, but I also want to mention that this show is now available on all podcast platforms, so if you prefer to just get the uh, audio version, you can do it that way as well. And today, we are talking all about gin, brief history of gin, some of the categories that gin falls under, some of the legal stipulations that are involved with this because of import-export issues, and the cocktail of the day is a gin and tonic. Cue the B-roll. So if you were watching on video, you would have seen me just make an Alchemix original gin and tonic variation called the Franco-German tonic. With 1.5 ounces of Monkey 47 gin, quarter ounce of St. George absinthe, American absinthe, half ounce of green chartreuse, and topped with Fever Tree's cucumber tonic. Served in a Spanish gin and tonic glass with a long slice of cucumber and a fresh dill sprig. It is fussy and a bit grandiose. So we'll get in today about what gin is, what a gin and tonic is, and at what point does a gin and tonic actually not become a gin and tonic anymore because there's so many other ingredients added. And this video is sponsored by Alchemist Consulting, but more on that later. First, what exactly is gin? You know, if you spend time at a bar, a lot of bar talk is um, typically, there's not a lot of weight behind it. You might have, you know, a skewed version of gin and what it, what it is and where it comes from. And the spirit's history is long and dizzying. So we're going to go into some of the key bits um, but the history takes place over a few thousand years, actually. So as always, take it with a grain of salt. And this is really sort of a brief history where we gloss over a lot, but hopefully we'll do a deep dive later in a later episode. So to talk about the history of gin, you have to first start with the history of juniper. So juniper has been used for medicinal purposes um, all the way dating back to the ancient Egyptians, actually. And I definitely want to give credit to a gentleman called Dave Broom, a cocktail book called Gin, How to Drink It, subtext 125 gins, four ways. Um, the history bit in the beginning, like a lot of cocktail books, it's just a lot of recipes and products in there, but the history bit in the beginning seems to be very credible and uh, very detailed. So, 
There's a passage on page nine in the history section of that says, quote, the ancient Egyptians noted in the Ebers Papyrus, dating back to 1550 BC, one of the oldest records of medical knowledge, how juniper cured jundice. For the ancient Greeks, it was both a performance-enhancing drug and a remedy for colic. The father of, the father of medicine, Roman physician Diorcides, detailed the effective use of juniper berries steeped in wine to combat chest ailments and also as an abortifient. Abortifient. I don't know how to say that. But basically means like a way to kill babies, um, which seems humane for the time, I guess. I don't know why that's funny to me given the current, current climate, but alcohol was definitely used to abort babies at a certain point. So do what you will with that. I don't care. 500. So um, there is a 500 year gap just in this one sentence, but he's in essence talking about some of the oldest records that show that juniper berries were were used in a lot of different medicinal ways. Now, of course, I, I, I highly doubt that this is backed by any modern literature, but um, it just helps to understand that the use of juniper steeped in alcohol, uh, not necessarily an alcohol made with juniper, dates back at least 2,000 years. So it's neither here nor there. Uh, but as always, it's important to understand this would have tasted nothing like modern gin. So um, the reason why the only reason why that's even relevant is because the juniper berry as a sort of medicinal uh, with medicinal use cases is in 100 percent indeed, in fact, what inspired what we think of now as gin. So. It brings me to the legal definition of gin in the U.S. Why this is important is because um, it says so, you know, because we'll circle back around to this later. But in essence, Americans, even though we did not invent gin, absolutely made gin what it is today. So the most valid definition of what gin actually is comes from the U.S., which is spirits with the main characteristic with a main characteristic flavor derived from juniper berries produced by distillation or mixing of spirits with juniper berries and other aromatics or extracts derived from these materials and bottled at no less than 40% alcohol by volume or 80 proof. So again, uh, we'll circle back to that later as the definition of gin varies um, country to country, but there's a long history of juniper being used medicinally, which again influenced modern gin. So there's a shift that happened uh, mostly because of the Dutch, a shift referring to when kind of like weed right now in America, I'm from Colorado, the first state to legalize it, but sort of a shift where it could you know, be used for quote-unquote medicinal purposes, and then when it could be used recreationally. So on page 11, Jin How to Drink It, he says, um, quote, there's a rich seam of alcohol-related writings in Dutch from the 13th century onwards, many of which mention juniper. 
However, it was Johannes D'Altris in 1351, copy of an earlier tract titled Aquavite, which translates to Water of Life, that was particularly significant in highlighting the shift in the spirit's function. In it, he stated that Aquavite, it makes people forget about sadness and makes their hearts happy and brave. So by the by 1350, you know, that's when, you know, mostly in Holland, apparently, that's when gin was be, first considered something um, used recreationally. And um, as always, I say, you know, the history almost doesn't matter because spirits were so bad for so long and they just would have been. And the real question is like, is it good now? So... In 1552, the first real recipe appears in the Dutch Philippus Hermani in a, a book titled In uh, Constilic Distillerbuck. <laughs> That's definitely going to be pronounced wrong. But uh, 1552, in, in essence, was the first documented recipe, uh, which included instructions on how to actually distilled gin. So these are Dutch writings from 1552. Um, and the key here is that up until this time frame, everything that was sort of referred to in writings would have been juniper berries that were either elixirs, um, which had no alcohol at all, or were actually steeped in wine. But either way, even if it was alcoholic, wine would have been the base. So really, we can have a conversation about, okay, there's like a um, 2000 year old history about using juniper in certain elixirs and it may have inspired gin in fact it probably did but um, when we actually used uh, juniper in sort of the distillation process or um, you know even if, if it was just an infusion then this would have this is really we're talking about like more of like a 700 year history and even then it's important to point out that even dating back to 1550s, this still um, would have would have looked a lot more like what we call Genever, which you know I explain to guests if I'm just um, you know quickly hitting on these short snippets uh, is sort of the Dutch predecessor to gin. That's a way you can think of it. So uh, there's a fantastic article. By by the Dutch, uh, which makes a distinction between gin and Jennifer, which says, um, which is what is Jennifer is the title, and it says, quote, although they are both spirits ancestored by juniper, or excuse me, although they are both spirits accented by juniper, they are very different animals. Gin is created by mixing a neutral spirit base with a blend of botanicals, predominantly juniper. Jennifer has a completely different base: malt wine distillate of corn rye and wheat which is more respectively which is more representative of a, a blended bourbon or a light scotch the base is whiskey like the malt wine is then blended with neutral spirits and a botanical mix to craft the spirit that tastes like the love child and of gin and whiskey well i almost said a bad word there <laughs> but if you taste it it is much more malty and typically less floral. And legally, Genever, if imported into the US, 
does not have to have the presence of juniper as a flavor profile. It's an important distinction because gin does, and we'll talk about more that more in a second. But they link you to another article that talks a little bit about the history of um, how Jennifer turned into gin, called Gin, the son of Jennifer. It says, quote, among many others, England became a market for Dutch Jennifer from the 1570s onwards. Sailors traveling between English ports and the ports of the Low Countries brought Jennifer back to them, much as modern day travelers acquire luxury drinks in duty free. Moreover, during the Thirty Years' War, British troops Troops joined Dutch soldiers in the fight against the Spanish army. They soon became familiar with Jennifer, drinking it ahead of battles to fight fear and fatigue. It is exactly what it's called, why it's called Dutch courage, end quote. They go on to say, in 1690, to reduce the economic dependence on foreign countries, the monopoly of London Guild of Distillers was ended and distilling was liberalized in England. This resulted in an explosive growth in the number of small artisanal distilleries. They started mass producing a juniper-based spirit that, although it took inspiration from Dutch juniper, was significantly lower in purity due to a combination of low-quality raw material and poor technological expertise. Its English name was a direct um, transformation of the word Geneva, shortened to one intoxicating monosyllabic word, gin. So by almost 1700, gin had really, or Geneva had really kind of started to take off in Holland. And um, just as in, I guess, very English fashion of the time, it would have been in vogue to sort of just rip the sort of techniques and a lot of the processes and try to claim it for your own. Um, so a lot of people will say that the Dutch invented gin. I guess technically they didn't. They invented Jennifer. Um, but gin was really just kind of ripped and forked. So... Um, by the 17th century, there's a lot of evidence uh, that juniper was being used by the ancient alchemists. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're making gin. They're, of course, just trying to create elixirs from immortality and turn base metals into gold. But by the 1700s, Jennifer became a huge exporter for Holland. So from what I understand, one of their top exports from around the world. So... You know, that's not to gloss over a long and much more complicated history, but the story in essence starts with Geneva, which still exists to this day. You know, many people understand bulls. We have that in America. I have some of it here. And uh, I encourage you to definitely go out and taste the difference. Um, but also, the original bathtub gin actually comes from um, before Prohibition, long before Prohibition, uh, in England in sort of the 18th century. So when um, the government, in essence, stopped controlling the monopoly of distillation, and so then just every Tom, Dick, and Andy um, 
which I don't know what the English version would be like of that, but uh, was making gin in bathtubs at home. And uh, it's in, during the 18th century, it was known to actually be safer to drink uh, bathtub gin than water in England, actually. So he goes on in the book, Gin, How to Drink It, in a section called America's Gift to the World on page 25, quote, Gin became a world spirit thanks to America. But America's taste for gin didn't start with London gins. For much of the 19th century, when Americans when Americans drank gin, they drank Geneva, which had been exported to the continent since at least 1732, with bowls starting to ship in 1750. <clears throat> so in America, certainly bowls is the most popular and in a lot of places, one of the only Genevers that you can actually get. So and apparently they were one of the first as well. But it's certainly interesting to understand that, uh, you know, by um, by the early 1800s and even the mid 1700s, what, what Americans thought of as gin was Geneva. And it's also important to understand that, that we you know, what America, I mean, there's a debate on whether or not what America actually was at, at that point. I mean, there's a lot of people from England on this continent. It didn't necessarily mean that we had a country yet, but you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly a historian only through gin, but I, I believe 1776 is when the country was founded, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so even in the early 1800, when America started making uh, their own recipes, they were based on recipes um, that really modeled themselves after Geneva. So that's a long-winded sort of brief history that gets us to where we are now, um, which, circling right back to a brief definition of gin by U.S. standards. But first, I want to talk to you about Alchemist Consulting. So uh, let's imagine you want to start a new bar or restaurant. Uh, you want to revamp your cocktails. Maybe you don't necessarily know the business. That's where Alchemist Consulting comes in. There's a team of three. There's three people on the team now, including yours truly, with a combined seven Michelin stars under our belt. That's places that we've worked, built cocktail programs recognized by multiple times by the New York Times, Forbes magazine, and many others. Um, works like this. So I come into your establishment. We build a cocktail program. We run the numbers, you know, all the stuff you don't want to do, profit margins, every cocktail, every spirit, how to price things, all that jazz, plus sourcing all the ingredients um, and putting together SOPs, that's standard operating procedures, so you can keep a high-quality product and service at all times. And literally maybe even get your drinks recognized in national magazines like we've done before. And upon, upon request, we've got gotten involved during the construction stage to make sure the setup was perfect. That's something that's very important if you want a, a, a cocktail joint or a restaurant that prints money behind the bar and even done POS systems. So just think of it like a turnkey service for a new bar, new restaurant, or to revamp your cocktail program. So the team has a combined 50 years experience in the bar business. So don't wait, click the first link in the description. So you can, that'll take us, that'll take you to a page with our testimonials where there's some big names. I'm not just saying that some of the biggest names in the restaurant and bar business advocating highly for Alchemics Consulting. Just fill out a little bit of your information and we will get back to you 
Um, it's a great time to open a restaurant, but you do not want to settle. People are not going to want to settle for a bad experience. So set yourself apart with Alchemics Consulting. Now back to me. So again, the legal definition. And, and so this is the, the thing that will really just help you banter back and forth with your friends or if you're a professional and uh, really needs to know gin. It's really the only legally, um, the, on, the only definition that really matters is debatably a little bit the EU, but the American definition, which is spirits with a main characteristic flavor derived from juniper berries produced by distillation or mixing of spirits with juniper berries and other aromatics or extracts derived from these materials and bottled at no less than 40% alcohol by volume. Now, the big question here is, without any sort of hard um, legal or scientific metrics, I guess you might say, who is the person that decides that juniper is quote unquote the main characteristic? <clears throat> and I can only speak for the US, but legally, the answer is no one. From what I understand, all you really have to do is prove that juniper is in the product, is being used during the distillation process. So the main point here is that gin is a, in essence, a kind of a big umbrella term, which has underneath it a wide variety of different um, flavor profiles. So um, I, I argue that this is, this is, it's a beautiful thing, right? It's the variety in gin is what I really love. So there's a few main categories. Um, Master of Malt describes London Dry, which is the main kind of, well, probably the most well-known category of gin. As uh, London Dry Gin emerged in the 19th century, London it came about due to improvements in distillation, namely the invention of the coffee still, which enabled high quality alcohol to be distilled cheaply and efficiently. Gin had previously been sweet, referring to Ginever, but this new spirit didn't need sweetening to disguise the taste. So the botanicals such as Juniper could take center stage. So there is not really a legal categorization of what London Dry actually is. And I, it's, it's important to understand that I, in the hearts and minds of Americans, London Dry typically refers to a gin that's more juniper forward, we, we say, which is to say, without the presence of other botanicals, and there's a ton of different botanicals that you can use to make gin. So they go on to say, nowadays, London Dry Gin doesn't have to come from London. It's a style rather than a place. With the EU legal definition, it has to be made by distilling natural botanicals using neutral alcohol of 96% ABV. Nothing can be added after distillation except water and has to be bottled at a minimum strength of 37% alcohol. So a lot of times the way gin is made is through distillation, just like any other spirit goes through a still where, you know, the fermented beverage 
um, turns into a much stronger beverage. So that's why they say 96%, which basically what's go into this into the still and then out and bottled by 37.5. I think it's so it's 40 in the US. Um, but there's an additional sort of process that happens with gin, which is a lot, if not exactly the way that essential oils are actually made. In fact, you could probably argue that gin was the first essential oil outside of like naturally, naturally occurring essential oils, like the actual, um, zest of lemons and limes that we use in cocktails, but that's kind of a different conversation. So so through the distillation process, gin is unique in that it gets infused. So juniper is typically, and I believe maybe not at all, um, actually the product that gets distilled. So you start with a neutral grain spirit. Typically, a lot of gin producers will just buy vodka. Or even worse, sometimes uh, just sort of the byproduct of making vodka, which I believe they call the tail. So the kind of crappy, most ethanol-y bits of the distillation process, they'll just buy it and then they'll just do the infusion process. But really, really, I mean, highly sought after gins, the infu- it, it'll, it'll typically all happen in the same place. Or if you buy a neutral grain spirit or a, a vodka or whatever, um, the infusion process will happen during distillation. So either way, it goes through a separate infusion process, which there's a there's a separate component needed to make gin, which they call a basket. And that's when that's where all of your botanicals are added, including juniper. But of course, gin, you know, some some very common ones are like citrus peel, lemon and lime grapefruit peel, any sort of flowers, botanicals like that. Um, you know, Monkey 47 famously uses 47 different botanicals. So that's certainly not going to be a London dry gin. But the point is, there's a, unlike any other spirit, there's a separate process where the actual neutral grain spirit gets infused. And um, I absolutely love that. And for me, it's kind of a toss-up between whiskey or gin being my favorite spirit but um yeah so the 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 difference between london dry i think for most americans is like is it very juniper juniper ford like maybe a beef eater or is it much more citrusy and much more floral i personally love what they call citrus ford gins and, um, you know, a lot of heavy juniper can sometimes result in that flavor profile, but I like gins that have the addition of maybe some citrus peel, a little bit of citrus wall, you know, a lot of, uh, old timers that I whipped up cocktails for in New York city would say that they taste like perfume and they just like the London dry. So, uh, it's just one of those, that those categories that gets murky and a lot of people don't know. Just a quick sip break. So I think that variety is actually what makes gin such a special spirit. There's a lot that can happen just under one particular category. And whilst you might say that the definition legally in the U.S. is very vague, I guess the reality is that's probably by design because there's so many different flavor profiles when it comes to gin that it can be used in so many different ways. So just need to include juniper. Frankly, I've heard people even argue that that's a little bit of a, 
antiquated or archaic idea because I mean, you, you could create a, you, you know, the infusion process is what makes it so amazing. So you could start with a neutral grain spirit and then you could infuse all sorts of things and have something that would closely resemble a floral gin just without juniper. And frankly, there's some of that happening in the world because the legal ramifications are basically nothing. I mean, it's all just red tape. So the reality is, is it doesn't even matter. So the variety is what makes it such a special spirit. And, um, that's why I think that the U.S. definition is most valid because it's just very vague and it all, it almost doesn't even matter. I mean, there's a problem that we have in this country where that if you make a spirit, if you distill it here in the states, it has to fit into one of these little boxes that they have for mostly import export purposes, and it stifles creativity because you have because it it affects what sort of tax bracket you're going to be in and and. Spirits are way too heavily taxed in this country. It's like completely insane. So we should have actually a lot more distillation happening here in the States. But because the reality is anything that ferments can be turned into a spirit. And in Jin's case, you, I think the presence of juniper actually stifles creativity a little bit because you could play around with a bunch of different kinds of infusions through a basket with all sorts of things without juniper. On. So although that's happening, um, it's just kind of one of those ideas that just makes one of those things that it unfortunately stifles innovation. And uh, of course, gin is not originally from the US, but the reason why I think this categorization is the most valid is because we did indeed make gin what it is today, mostly because of the pre-prohibition era, America being the melting pot, pot that it is with a lot of, you know, unique ingredients, ideas. Although most gin didn't really enter the States until post-prohibition, gin was heavily drunk in the early 19th century and the 18th century. So um, we've been the largest importer of gin on and off but uh, for for the past hundred years. So, and even according to Statista in 2020, we were, we were, the, we were the largest importer by far and second only to Germany and still imported about more than three and a half times what they imported. So the point is, it's also important to understand that the regulation in terms of really anything is only as good as the countries or regions that agree on that regulation. So most of the regulation when it comes to gin and actually most spirits just in the West in general happens between the EU and the, and the, um, and the U S. So, yeah, even to this day, gin is legally different in the U.S. and the U.K. Maybe small differences, but uh, that's why this whole beef eater thing was a finagle, um, and it didn't go unnoticed. We covered it in a previous episode. So for a long time, their ABV was different in the U.S. than it was in Europe. And so during the pandemic, as Toby Caccini said, they used the pandemic to sort of usher in a smaller ABV in the U.S., they dropped their US ABV to match their EU ABV. 
But all the beef eater cocktails and most of the beef eater that was being drunk was drunk in the U.S. I mean, it does, in essence, it doesn't even matter where it's made. So, the you know, even to this day, a lot of companies have to bottle their gins at different um, ABVs with different sort of stipulations based on which country they're importing to. And the reality is, is the big play, no matter what spirit you are, no matter what country you come from, is the United States. And that just is what it is. So, like, you know, as much as we love the craft of tequila and mezcal and is very much a Mexican tradition, and because of a lot of regulation, it has to be there, we are still by far, by an insanely high margin, the biggest importer of tequila and mezcal. So... You know, you can make something, it can be artisan, it can be amazing, but if you don't have anywhere to sell it, it ultimately doesn't even matter. So the countries need to agree on what the regulation is. So right now we decided it's okay that tequila has to be made in Mexico because we want good trade regulations and it's their tradition. And that's fine. But if one day we decided that's not the case anymore, you know, I know people actually locally that tried to create um, a tequila-like product and had to go go through all these regulations just to sell something even close. Even though you can import blue agave and make it anywhere. I'm not saying you should, or you shouldn't. But the point is, between Mex this is just an example between Mexico and the U.S. Because this is a, you know, an example that's kind of, I guess, make, you know, making new in the news cycle right now. But this is something that happened over a year ago. So Putin one day decided that champagne was now made in Russia, period. And so, you know, France has sat there like, well, what the hell are you talking about? We have this old tradition and many people that know champagne know it has to, be, has to come from the champagne re region of France, France, plus some other um, processes that are unique that make it different from sparkling wine. So America, again, being the biggest importer of champagne, we're okay with playing by those rules. And I think we should. And uh, we want good trade relations. But if, but now, according to Russians, they can't import any champagne from France, and all the all champagne is made in Russia, and they're exporting some too, even though the actual physical characteristics aren't aren't really like champagne at all because there's not a second fermentation process in the bottle, and blah 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 blah. But if they want to decide that, they can just decide that it is what it is. I don't agree with it, but. I'm just making the point that the same goes for gin. We all have to have, and it really goes for words and anything that we all agree on. We all have to agree on something to make it real. Otherwise, it's not real. That's just how, that's just how it is. So any sort of categorization, whether legal or not, is a myth that human beings have to buy into and all agree upon for it to actually mean anything. So... Gin is not a huge issue because it's um, it's mostly, I mean, it's it's all Western. It's all a Western ideal. It's a Western invention. And so we all, among most Western countries, agree what it is, and there's not really many problems. That's why the legal definition of gin in the U.S. is very vague so that we can, a lot of, so it's okay for people to call their product gins that can come from all over the world with different ingredients and different processes. And I ultimately think that that is a good thing. So it's just important as a consumer to be educated about things. But again, I love the variety. It's gin is incredibly versatile. And I would say that 
if ever you if ever you find yourself creating a gin i think the best way or sorry a gin cocktail i believe the best way to do it would be to start with a gin that you really love and then reverse engineer some of the flavors in it and then work from there and we always talk about this idea of doubling down on flavor profiles and cocktails so if you can add some ingredients that really highlight some of the amazing flavors um, in a, a gin then that'll be a winner for example with a classic cocktail i think that the best gin for a bee's knees <clears throat> some simple concoction that dates back to prohibition of uh, gin lemon and honey is a gin that is citrus forward citrus forward with a hint of sweetness because that works with a simple concoction of um, citrus and and honey as a sweetener so um and it's not in vogue but i would say try uh, also drinking some gins neat just to taste them and just to see how it is and for some reason this is something that i don't i don't want to say it's been demonized over the years but it's just something that people have not really done but like for me personally if i'm at a dive bar and i don't want to get a cocktail nor something over ice because i don't even think the ice is going to be clean then i'll just have i wouldn't mind having a gin neat if it's not a whiskey night for me so it's not as enjoyable in my personal opinion with a london dry but um you know like a bombay sapphire something a little more floral or if you just want to try gins you can you can try it at home put gin in a carnegie glass or sorry a glencairn glass um, and this is, you know, in essence, why I wouldn't get a gin and tonic at a dive bar. I might get a gin and soda now and again, because I don't like tonics with a ton of sugar. And, um, I argue that gin and tonic is maybe the best cocktail of all time, but very particular about the tonic. I know I'm one of these guys, but and I'm not like, I mean, I'm a booze bag. I'm not some like trying to be super healthy. But when tonic has a, as much sugar as a Coca-Cola, it's a little kooky to me. I don't think I like that. And plus, even just for flavor reasons, I like bitter and I want to be able to taste the quinine or the quinine, however you want to say it. Both ways are correct, by the way, so don't come at me. Um, so I just think for it's even it's better with a lot less sugar because it's just overly sweet. Plus, gin and tonic with a, a tonic that has a ton of sugar, you're not going to be able to taste the nuances of the actual gin. The gin is going to be buried by sweetness. And as always, the idea behind a great cocktail is to highlight a spirit, not bury a spirit. Um, so, yeah, I recommend looking into a little bit higher quality tonics. And I... We just uh, we just got done shooting the gin and tonic variations video, which will come out soon. I'm very excited about. So tonic to me is like a fun thing where for a long time there's been just a few brands that controlled the narrative, but then really starting with Fever Tree, there's been a lot of other brands pop up, a lot more artisan brands with high quality ingredients. Um, I remember I was working at this joint in New York City, and this is maybe four years ago or something and we did um we actually i was behind the bar when fever tree was actually shooting a commercial and it's starting to pick up traction but it's still way more popular now just in the last four or five years and um 
we served it at this particular place. And so they were actually filming an ad and I was the one behind the bar doing pours and all this weird stuff. And I was talking to an executive and I'm, you know, Fever Tree has a unique story. And of course, I'm sure a lot of it's hyped up. But what he told me just from a business perspective was like, see, we know it's not verbatim. Um, or this is verbatim. It's not word for word. He's like, see, we know that the average consumer, especially at home, is not going to ever make a cocktail with more than two ingredients. And I think that they were ahead of the curve on that. I really think they were, even though if you know how to shake, if you know how to stir, you can put in a ton of great cocktails. If you think about just how versatile gin is at a spirit, as a spirit, a ton of up cocktails, the aviation, the bee's knees. Um, I mean, those are both sours plus a south side sour with herbs, a martinez, a martini, stirred up cocktails, Collins. Uh, there's just, and of course now there's a lot of unique and interesting and much more creative cocktails happening with gin that aren't just built on the classics. So, but it's hard to say where the gin and tonic actually came from. Nobody seems really knows. There's a lot of bar talk. And um, although it's just such a perfect pairing to me because tonic was also used for medicinal properties, whether there's any validity to that or not, they still hold very heavily herbal uh, properties in their actual flavor profile. So a quick passage again from Jin, how to drink it. He says, today the GNT is enjoying a renaissance, the trigger for which came thanks to the explosion and interest of gin among a new generation of Spanish drinkers. It was in Spain where I first came across the concept of drinking a GNT after a meal, which there means around midnight. It revives the taste buds, clears the head of Rioja, that's wine, and uh, sets you up for the next stage of the evening's entertainment. The serve was also different. None of the dribble of gin, flaccid lemon, watery ice, and oceans of tonic. As served in a British pub, Spanish bartenders were joyously heavily handed, heavy-handed, delivering a massive shot of gin, an afterthought of tonic, and a good hard ice. In recent times, the Spanish serve has now extended to presenting it in a large balloon wine glass, which is actually indeed why now in the cocktail world, just in the last few years, we're referring to this as a Spanish gin and tonic glass. So, you know, my our recipe for today is a bit fussy, and a lot of people don't like that fuss. But uh, apparently um, in Spain and other European countries, it's much more in vogue to have a large bit of gin and just topped a little bit with tonic, which I think is interesting and speaks volumes to the fact that gin is something that can be enjoyed by itself. In fact, if you were to get it in a dive bar, I would recommend just getting a little splash of the tonic if you want to enjoy the flavor profile of gin. So my answer is cocktails are in essence a uniquely American concept, although of course they spread to the rest of the world. And so you can do whatever you want with gin, you know? And I personally, my my go-to gin and tonic is just a nice floral, like um, 
Recently, I've been drinking Roku with Japanese botanicals, which also speaks volumes to the fact that you can make it with all sorts of different botanicals from around the world. And I would actually be curious to know what their legal stipulations for distilling gin are. Um, with a, with just a fever trees, Indian tonic water, a nice long block of ice with a twist of lemon. So simple. So two ingredients and a garnish in essence. And of course, some of the processes like the ice and the garnish take time and all that. But I also don't think that it makes gin any less valid as if it has some of the fuss. Now, of course, we can have a sort of a ridiculous philosophical debate about when does it not become a gin and tonic anymore. And I just think as long as there's the presence of gin and tonic, and those are the two main components, you'll be, it's still a gin and tonic. And some of the best gin and tonic variations, like, um, the one invented by yours truly from the episode has just a hint of some other herbal ingredients. And sometimes the garnish itself, especially when it's on the, on the nose can make a, a gin and the experience of drinking a gin and tonic, just completely different. So that being said, I do hope that you actually try our gin and tonic variation and uh, comment your favorite gins. If you're on YouTube and please comment any questions you might have about cocktail spirits, gins, or if you're listening on audio, you could ask me on Twitter at Tommy Alchemy. That's it for the episode today. Cheers.